How beautiful are your feet in sandals, O Prince's daughter! The curves of your hips are like jewels, the work of the hands of an artist. Your navel is like a round goblet which never lacks mixed wine. Your belly is like a heap of wheat fenced about with lilies. Your two breasts are like two fawns, twins of a gazelle. Your neck is like a tower of ivory, your eyes like the pools in Heshbon by the gate of Bath-Rabin. Your nose is like the tower of Lebanon which faces toward Damascus. Your head crowns you like caramel, and the flowing locks of your head are like purple threads. The king is captivated by your tresses. How beautiful and how delightful you are, my love, with all your charms. Your stature is like a palm tree, and your breasts are like its clusters. I said, I will climb the palm tree. I will take hold of its fruit stalks. Oh, may your breasts be like clusters of the vine, and the fragrance of your breath like apples, and your mouth like the best wine. It goes down smoothly for my beloved, flowing gently through the lips of those who fall asleep. So, this is the third (laughs) time he describes her, and this is by far the most intimate. Uh, How beautiful are your feet and sandals. And the other times he's gone top to bottom. But maybe thinking about the dance leads him to think about her feet and go from bottom to top. Uh, So he works with the feet up. And breaks a good bit of new ground in this description. Uh, He's uh, seeing her hips like the hands of an artist. Uh, You know, he's using lots of metaphors, of course. Um, You know, he talks about her being like wine and uh, her belly like a heap of wheat. Um, you know, they preferred their women to look slightly pregnant rather than that they were in imminent danger of starvation, <laughs> you know, like we do. Uh, you know, who's to say which is better? But, but again, if fenced about with lilies, I have an idea he may be talking about more than just uh, what the parts of her that digest her food. So, uh, you know, I, I think all of this is probably uh, quite... Um, you know, descriptive, quite uh, explicit. Your breasts are like two fawns, twins of a gazelle. Your neck's like a tower of ivory. Don't know if I want to try that <laughs> at home, but uh, very long neck. Yeah. <laughs> no, I'm not sure these are particularly like technical descriptions. <laughs> Oh, the dimensions. Yes, she carries herself with dignity. You know, she's um, you know well composed. She's respectable. She's well put together. Um, you know, thankfully in God's providence, men and women can be attracted to all kinds of bodies. And uh, don't assume that even <coughs> your nose doesn't really look like uh, the Tower of Lebanon. That the experience in here is not for you. You know, you can you can get by with noses that look like other things. <laughs> but but you know, he wants to tell her how awesome she is, and so he describes her pretty much in terms of the whole geography of the Promised Land, which may be part of the point. Maybe she is his promised land. She's his Canaan. She's, you know, she is the one flowing with milk and honey for him. So I think that's a possibility. Because he pretty much does kind of complete a geographical sweep of that whole area, you know, comparing her body to different parts of that. Um, 
But he clearly he sees her as beautiful. None of well, this is hilarious to us. It wasn't hilarious to him. You know, this is beautiful to him. And really and truly, if you ever listen to what we say, sometimes if we if you didn't know the context, you'd be pretty, you know, mystified by some of that too. You know, my little pork chop or you know, whatever it is. <laughs> I mean, people can get to saying some things that are really kind of odd, you know, but they mean it well, and they're taken, it's taken well, you know. Uh, you just like, hey, baby, all the time, like, why are you calling her a little child? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, what, what's the advantage of being a baby? Right. You know, but, yeah, but just, we just do that. I mean, that's just normal. Uh, we describe things in terms that are, you know, beautiful to us or... Uh, you know, meaningful to us. So, you know, her hair is beautiful. <laughs> how delightful, how beautiful and how delightful you are, my love, with all your charms. And, uh, you know, he wants to enjoy her. She's like a palm tree, and uh, he wants to climb up and, uh, you know, enjoy the uh, fruit stalks and uh, the clusters, and, you know, the fragrance is like a breath of apples, so I guess he's gotten close enough to know about that. And, uh, you know, he's just he wants to enjoy the fruit of her body. Now, again, one thing to be observed is against this Greek concept that the body was undesirable, an unworthy shell that we'd be lucky to die and, and shut ourselves up. You know, our body is destined to be raised. You know, body was the very thing that clothed the Son of God when he came down here. We should not be, you know, disparaging toward toward our body. You know, so that leads to this idea, you know, again, that if, if you were really spiritual, then, you know, you wouldn't be interested in these kinds of, uh, you know, intimate kinds of things. No, that's not true. Not true at all. There's nothing in the Bible that indicates that. You know, and I think it leads us to an imbalance. We, we get to where we just really wish we didn't have this body. Well, I granted, this body's not the ideal. You know, the, the world has been you know, cursed by the consequence of sin. But our bodies will be raised to change. But, I mean, we, we value and treasure our body. And, and we treasure the relationship in marriage that God created for us. He made it. He wants it to be special for us. And he loves us. Uh, so he gave us something really wonderful. Um, so, he says, and the fragrance of your breath like apples... Might go back to two, three on that also, or some one verse in chapter two anyway. And your mouth like the best wine. She's an awesome kisser. And she says, it goes down smoothly for my beloved, flowing gently through the lips of those who fall asleep. So she interrupts to say, and I'm yours, and you know, we're right. You know, they complete each other's sentences again. They're right in harmony with each other. You know, she picks up the poetry and the imagery to respond positively to him. All right, so comments and questions through verse 9. All right, 
ten to thirteen. So again, I am my beloved, and his desire is for me. There's this idea of giving ourselves to the other one. You know, seeking to be a blessing to them. I'm my beloved. I want to make him happy. I want to fulfill him. I want to make him better. I belong to him. That's the mutuality in marriage. They give themselves to each other. This is not a one-sided relationship. This is both of them are giving themselves to the other one. And his desire is for me. Now, that word desire is used in the Bible three times. The other two times are in the first four chapters of the Bible. Back in Genesis 3 and verse 16, says to the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. In pain you will bring forth children, yet your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. Now, I think a part of the curse of the covenant would be her greater dependence on her husband, her needing him, her desiring him, and him ruling over her, um, that that this becomes not as harmonious a relationship and not as equivalent a relationship. But now, when they return to God's ideal in marriage, his desire is for me. You know, it's kind of a return to paradise. It reverses the curse. It's not just one-sided. You know, she desires him, he desires her. Um... The other place where uh, that word is used in Genesis 4-7, uh, sin is scratching the door and its desire is for you, but you must master it. It's ironic that it was used, or interesting to use those three times. Um, but but I, I think the idea is this idea of now he desires me too. You know, I belong to him and he desires me. You know, this is not just I need him, but this is also restoring the paradise pattern. He needs it. We're mutually interdependent. And so, uh, she takes the initiative and she invites him to the country. Let's go out to the country and spend the night in the villages. Let's rise early and go to the vineyards and see where the vine is bud, the blossom open, where the pomegranates have bloomed. There I will give you my love. So she's inviting him to the country, to the vineyards. You know, we know the symbolism by now. Uh, she'll take care of everything. She wants to go out privately with him. And, uh, you know, so the pomegranates are often a symbol of their love. The mandrakes have given forth fragrance. Remember the mandrakes in the story of Jacob, uh, where uh, they seem... Be a son... Reuben. Reuben brings Leah gets to hire her husband for the night. 
Yeah, she basically bargains away the mandrakes to Rachel so she gets Jacob. And uh, the mandrakes apparently were in that situation thought of as a fertility aid. So Rachel gets <laughs> the mandrakes and Leah gets two more sons. <laughs> so much for that. Um, but maybe mandrakes here is kind of the love apple. You know, and so the mandrakes have given forth their fragrance. You know, they probably don't need a love apple here. Uh, but, uh, they've got, they've got all the fruits available. Uh, and she says, uh, over our, our doors are all choice fruits, both new and old, which I've saved up for you, my beloved. She hasn't been with anybody else. All of her fruits she saved up for him. You know, he gets them all. Uh, thoughts and comments? Should this idea of the vine budding and the blossoms opening and all of this, coupled with the mandrakes, should we be looking at the I question of fertility and pregnancy <laughs> or? I suspect more it's just a relationship. I don't know that this book really ever goes so much toward the idea of children. Maybe the pomegranate because it's so, so much seed, but I still think we're looking at it more from just the intimacy. You know, and there is this mindset also among some people that, you know, intimacy is only for procreation. That is not true. Now, should we multiply and replenish the earth? Yes, I think so. Does that mean that that's the only reason a man and his wife should be together? No. In fact, First Corinthians 7 says, my body belongs to my maid. I should seek to please them. Um, so what if we know that you know, bearing children doesn't seem to be a biological option for whatever reason at this point, age or other factors? Uh, should that mean that we cease the intimacy since children can't result? Not at all. Uh, God intends for the husband and wife to be together because that's a part of the relationship. That's a part of what this is talking about, what this means. And I think from that angle, and maybe this is a good place to interject this as anything, I do not see, from my understanding of the scriptures, some idea that a couple must have as many offspring as is biologically possible. I don't see any... any reason. Should we have offspring if we can? Yes, I think so. Should we seek to replenish the earth? Yes, I think so. Does that mean that we can't engage in any kind of family planning? I don't see that. I don't, I don't know what passage we use to affirm that. I mean, that's more back from the idea that the only purpose of being together is procreation. And that is just not the case. And I think, so I think here, they're together because they love each other. And they're, they're committed in marriage to each other. And this is a part of their relationship. And it's a beautiful thing. It's a God-given thing. Alright, other thoughts are coming. All right, uh, chapter 8, verses 1 to 4.